Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest Quinquennial Strut Edition. It's Wednesday, July 1st, 2015, and on today's program, we're going to talk about Love and Mercy, the film about Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys, and then The Song of Summer. We'll check in on the contest to see which song is officially the one that plays out of car windows and tickles your eardrums all summer long. And finally, it's the fifth annual Summer Strut. We will check in on the songs you, our listeners, submitted as the nominees for what we should be carrying around in our earbuds as we strut around this summer. And then on Slate Plus, we will conclude this musical potpourri edition by checking in on our first concerts, our fledgling live music experiences. Joining me today is film critic Dana Stevens. Hi, Dana. Hey, Julia. And Steve is sitting out this week not because he is laid low by ravaging Lyme disease, but because he just had some family commitments. So I'm delighted to report that we're joined instead by Chris Melanfi, who analyzes the charts for Slate and who regularly plays outro whack-a-mole with producer Ann Haberman. Hi, Chris. How you doing, Julia? I'm doing great. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, in Steve's honor, I'm uh, doubled over and, uh, you know, trying to strum a guitar at the same time. Nice. I'm feeling the vibrations. All right. So speaking of vibrations, Dana, we've all seen Love and Mercy, the Brian Wilson movie, which came out a little while ago, but is, I think, slowly rolling out in indie fashion across the country. But you did not review it for Slate. So I'm very curious to hear first what you made of it. Yeah, it's true. I missed the moment to review it. But actually, Chris and I had been corresponding about watching it and finding a way to either spoil it or come in here and talk about it for weeks, because I kept on hearing from different sources that this was a different kind of musical biopic, that it wasn't, you you know, the one parodied and walk hard that we've all seen <laughs> countless times uh, about a musician's rise, fall and subsequent redemption, even though Brian Wilson's life story is very ripe for that kind of movie, given that he did have this very dramatic dark period, which this movie essentially kind of elides. It's about the edges of that dark period and not the dark period itself. But I was really impressed with Love and Mercy. It's not perfect, but its imperfections are, are endearing, too. And it's I love that it's very small scale, that it has uh, two really interesting performances that don't quite go together, two right. kind of disjointed different Brian Wilsons, the younger one, Paul Dano and the older one, John Cusack. And I also just liked that it was very, very musical. It was clearly made by people who loved the Beach Boys music, wanted to understand the creation of Pet Sounds, which is primarily what the part of the movie having to do with Paul Dano is about. You couldn't call it the first part because these two stories sort of seamlessly are intercut with each other. And really, it's a movie all about listening. It opens on an image of Brian Wilson's ear, and the whole movie is, is sort of about inviting us to listen, including to some of the scary things he listens to, like the voices in his head. Yeah, I, I co-signed virtually all of that. It is not a perfect movie. 
you know, as you indicated, I'm a big fan of Walk Hard, which came out just after Walk the Line and uh, Ray, you know, kind of a wave of mid aughts biopics and makes fun of what I call the Stations of the Cross of the musical biopic. It's very dangerous when you do a musical biopic because you have to simultaneously appeal to people who know have no background and then people who, you know, know every detail and kind of make it not literally obvious. And this movie does a pretty good job, not a perfect job. There are definitely some clunky moments where they're trying to elide a lot of Beach Boys history into a small snippet. But on the whole, I would say this movie does a very creative job partially because of the way it focuses. It doesn't attempt to do everything. It's not a sweeping full career biopic. It picks like two very specific moments in Brian Wilson's life. Uh, one period in the 60s and not even uh, their rise. It's it's that, again, that Pet Sounds moment and Good Vibrations moment. And then this 80s moment when Brian Wilson has already had his breakdown. The, he, they don't even show the breakdown, which happened in the 70s. And uh, they are showing the uh, the period where he's under the care of the uh, kind of horrific Dr. Eugene Landy, uh, basically uh, a, a broken shell of his former self, but trying to get back into the studio and record again. It's an interesting framing device, and, and definitely the, the performances are, are key to making that framing device work. Let's uh, listen to a clip of the film before we go much further. Remember, it's the uh, 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 higher octave on the upbeats in the bridge. Hey, Brian. I think you might have screwed up here. Really? Let me see. Well, you've got Lyle playing in D, and the rest of us are in A major. Yeah, that's right. How does that work? Two bass lines in two different keys? Well, it works in my head. I mean, it's all playing in my head, the orchestration, and five vocal parts. I think it's going to work. Let's try it. Oh, oh, help, help. Here's how I want you to do it. Because, uh... uh Boom, two, three, four. So it's uh, the the first beat on the last bar of the intro. Boom, two, three, four. So that's a, a clip of a part of the movie where they're recording pet sounds. And I think you get a sense of the care that the movie takes with the music, which I really liked about it. You also get a little bit of a sense of the difficulty of trying to explain what was interesting about Brian Wilson's music to an informed and uninformed audience. You get like that poor member of the Wrecking Crew session group being like, Brian, I think you made a mistake. And then him like explaining, you know, why he's so great, which just felt a little a little yeah. uh, on the nose, a little clunky. That was a Station of the Cross moment. I think there's actually a line where Brian says, well, it works in my head, which is kind of like spoon-feeding it to the audience a little bit. On the other hand, there's like another quote in that scene that I loved so much, I wrote it down where he says, if you repeat a mistake every four bars, it's not a mistake anymore. That's a better quote. It may or may not be a real quote, but the idea that Brian Wilson had a lot in his head and he was open to the idea that things would change organically in the studio. I, I mean, to answer your question... I, I saw the movie about three or four weeks ago, and ever since I saw it, the number one thing I'm telling people is if you see it for no other reason, see it for the studio sequences because they are among the best I've seen in a music biopic about the process of creation, particularly with a quote-unquote genius. The pet sound sequences, including that clip we just heard, are fantastic. The The sequence where they create good vibrations a little bit later is, I think, even better. It may be my favorite five minutes in the whole movie because you watch how... This idea is built from 
a piano riff that Brian is playing. And then, you know, Mike Love, uh, his cousin, is, you know, coming in and, and offering his own ideas about the lyrics and the direction it should take. And then, you know, they build it in the studio. There's even a fantastic, you know, in terms of the, the filming tech, filmic technique, there's a 360-degree shot that shows Brian trying to capture the cellos you know, playing the that underpins the song while they show everybody in the studio kind of hanging around and frankly being bored. But, you know, that, that those moments of creativity and those little flashes that happen in the studio and th- those sequences are among the very best in the movie, I think. I agree. I love those sequences. I thought they were fascinating, particularly to me as someone who likes the Beach Boys, recognizes that they get a lot of respect from people who know more about music than I do and can hear that in their songs when I pay attention. But to me, the thing that really breaks this movie out of the classic music biopic structure is not just the cross-cutting between the past and the present, but the fact that the present has its own crazy, um, like, what a girl with gumption can do (laughs) storyline, which is, you know, we see the broken shell of a man, 80s Brian Wilson, meet the woman who goes on to become his second wife, played in the movie by Elizabeth Banks. Uh, friend of the Gap Fest. <laughs> friend of the Gap Fest, Elizabeth Banks, uh, who I think does a terrific job playing this like Aaron Brockovichian role where she sees the kindness and genius within this battered, broken shell of a human and recognizes the dire situation he's in with this doctor who seems to have pulled him out of very dire straits in the 70s, but now is being super controlling and administering drugs and just being basically a a bully and a jerk and a control freak. And I got to say, I'm curious what you guys thought of that storyline. I loved that storyline. Like, I almost would have been happy for a movie that was just the kind of drama of their love story and, and pulling him out of that insane almost melodramatic situation. Like, it just added this other emotional fursant to the movie that I think added heft without really drawing away from the story of his music. Well, for one thing, we haven't mentioned Paul Giamatti, who plays Eugene Landy, the doctor that's essentially keeping Brian Wilson prisoner. And those details are not that exaggerated. Melinda Ledbetter, who's the Elizabeth Banks character and his current wife, his second wife, was a consultant on the project, and so was Brian Wilson. And I think as creepy as that stuff is about him being sort of under lock and key with this controlling psychiatrist... It actually happened, and it has this kind of cult-like quality that's very upsetting. When you first see Paul Giamatti in this shag wig, his face is shaved. He's not his normal, bearded, scruffy Paul Giamatti self. He's sort of this slick 80s hustler. And uh, and at first, it's sort of a comic look because it's Paul Giamatti in a shag wig. But he does become really menacing and frightening. Yeah, I, I have to say, I found the Paul Giamatti portrayal you know, using an elephant gun to kill a mosquito. I mean, he really goes like full Giamatti in that role. And... In general, I would say if I had one problem with the movie, it was that the villains were quite villainous. Oddly, the person who I think everybody agrees is is truly a, a jerk and an asshole, uh, Mike Love of the Beach Boys. There's like, you know, a whole website dedicated to what a jerk Mike Love is. Brian's My, cousin. Brian's cousin and, you know, bandmate. Uh, by the way, if you ever want to have a little fun, uh, Google 1988 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, Mike Love. He like rips into everybody. He's a complete jerk. Mike Love actually comes off as quite humane in the movie, but the Eugene Landy character played by Giamatti is also like, you know, turned up to 11. And it was only actually after I went back, there, there was actually a piece in Slate by uh, Marissa Vesey. I hope I'm pronouncing She's her last name right. She's sitting right there. She's our stand-in intern this uh, week. For Hi, Lindsay. Marissa. Nice job. Uh, <laughs> Vesey, thank you. I apologize. Basically fact-checking the movie. And uh, yeah, Dr. Landy's really pretty much that awful. So, I mean, it, maybe Giamatti's performance is not as over the top as I had first thought it was. But I would be curious to know what you guys thought of 
Dano versus Cusack, because I, I, I had different reactions to each of them at different times. One thing that's just odd is their face shapes are so different. Like totally. Paul Dano is all these kind of broad cheekbones and this weird striking chin that is both strong and weak at the same time. Like every time I look at Paul Dano's face, I just... I'm trying to understand his chin. And then... And he gained quite a bit of weight for the role, too. Yeah. And then John Cusack has just, just like, such a narrow face. Like, they don't look alike. I can see the notion of casting Cusack because it's, like, somebody who was a wonderkin sweetheart. And then what do you do with him when he's a man in his 40s or 50s? It's like you're casting Lloyd Dobler. Yeah. So I get the notion. But Cusack doesn't really... He just... You're like, oh, there's John Cusack. I had had trouble letting go of his Cusackitude. Well, it depends to what degree you think it's important or intentional in this movie to have a continuity of character between the young Brian Wilson and the older Brian Wilson. This movie was co-written by the director and screenwriter Oren Moverman, who also wrote with Todd Haynes, I'm Not There, that Bob Dylan biopic, which I think we talked about on the show, that is very avant-garde and kind of attempts to show Bob Dylan as all different characters throughout his life, including a young black man and Kate Blanchett at one point. And, you know, just basically everybody under the sun gets their chance at, at playing Bob Dylan. This movie is nowhere near that avant-garde and its approach to, to Brian Wilson, but it does seem to be strangely disjointed in these two halves and to maybe not mind that so much and to maybe want us to have that moment of disconnect. Yeah, I think the more we talk about it, the more I'm liking this movie and its ambition in retrospect, despite its flaws. I definitely would recommend that people go see it. So it's Love and Mercy, directed by Bill Pollard. I think it's his first movie. It's a pretty impressive That's right. He's produced but never directed. So check it out. It's rolling out slowly nationwide. And let us know what you think on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Before we move on to our next topic, I have an announcement for our listeners. Join the writers and editors of Outward, Slate's LGBTQ blog, as they discuss the impact of the Supreme Court's ruling on same-sex marriage and other topics live on stage in New York on July 13th. Outward's J. Brian Lauder, Mark Joseph Stern, and June Thomas will also welcome two special guests, Evan Wolfson, the attorney considered by many to be the architect of legal same-sex marriage, and Ted Allen of the Food Network shows Chopped and All-Star Academy, who was one of the cast members on Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. He'll be on hand to discuss the state of gay stereotypes in the media. Plus, audience members will get the chance to pose their very own Ask a Homo questions. I went to the last Outward Live event. It was an astonishingly fun night, not because I'm surprised these guys could put together a fun night, but because these guys are doing basically a live podcast, except for they don't do a podcast. So, you know, we go do a live show and we have weeks of sitting in the studio to draw on as we yak and chit chat on stage. But Mark Bryan and uh, June have just great rapport and the guests seem particularly terrific. And obviously, it's a great time for gay rights. So come check it out at City Winery in New York, Monday, July 13th. For tickets, go to slate.com slash NYC outward. Slate Plus members will get 30% off their ticket purchase. Again, slate.com slash NYC outward. All right, on to our next topic. So we have a two-part musical bonanza for our second and third segments today. We're going to talk first about the state of the contest for the official Song of Summer. This is sort of a jokey, sort of a semi-serious contest put on by various music blogs and culture blogs every summer where people try and track the hits of the summer and figure out which song is going to be the iconic Song of Summer. When you remember the summer of 2015, you think, what? Chris, run down for us what the 
basic takeaway songs were the last few summers. Yeah, I mean, the last, let's say, five years have had, each summer has had a pretty iconic, indisputable, you know, winner or maybe two winners, you know. So, like, last summer it was uh, Fancy by Iggy Azalea. She's not had a great year since she had her song of the summer, but uh, she definitely owned last summer with this Charlie XCX song, uh, Fancy. 2013 was the summer of the great battle between the ultimate winner, which was uh, Blurred Lines by Robin Thicke, versus uh, Daft Punk's Get Lucky. Uh, 2012 was the year of Call Me Maybe by uh, Carly Rae Jepsen. Uh, 2011, that would be Party Rock Anthem by LMFAO. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you danced to it at a wedding. Don't, don't front. Uh, and uh, 2010, that would be California Girls by Katy Perry. So, like, there's been a tailor-made, indisputable song of the summer all of the last five summers. I could even go back further. There have been others, you know, Umbrella by Rihanna in 2007. I Got a Feeling by the Black Eyed Peas, summer of 2009. All this is preamble to say that 2015 is a weird summer because there's not a whole lot of emerging consensus this year. It's It's been a bit of a muted contest thus far, in part because songs from the winter are not letting go. There was a, an absolute blockbuster this winter uh, by uh, Mark Ronson and Bruno Mars called Uptown Funk, which was number one for 14 weeks, literally, from like January to April, and it's still in the top 10 even now. This is that ice cold Michelle fight for that white gold. This one for them hood girls, them good girls, straight masterpieces. Styling, wildin', living it up in the city. Got chucks on with Saint Laurent, gotta kiss myself, I'm so pretty. I'm too hot. <laughs> Call the police and the firemen, I'm too hot. Make a dragon wanna retire, man. I'm really glad you started with Uptown Funk because I, in preparing for this segment, was trying to figure out what's the song that feels like the hot new jam of the summer. And they all just cower under that song. I mean, Uptown Funk is great. You cannot not bop to it. Right. Bruno Mars is sort of a charming star in that he feels dorkily like your mom likes him too. Like he doesn't <laughs> feel cool. It doesn't feel like a cool new voice He's not has too been cool. discovered. But it is good. And it does the exact thing. It feels like a song of summer to me. There's something about the aggressiveness, the swagger of it, the danceability of it. It's a song about like people watching it's a song about like checking out hot girls in the city which is much easier to do in june than january from what i glean <laughs> check out that girl's muffler <laughs> oh my god those toggles on her peacoat you know like it's it it so it, i i feel like the theory that uptown funk has like fucked up the song of the summer race this year is very plausible to me yeah it's plausible to me too i mean there there are actually two songs that have fucked up the song of the summer contest this year because the song that's actually sitting at number one right now first went to number one in the spring and that would be see you again by Wiz Khalifa. Uh, That was from the movie Furious 7, which is one of the blockbusters of the year. And people are going to think of Furious 7 as a summer blockbuster, but it actually came out in April. But it's still there. Uh, It's been number one now for something like 10 weeks. We've come a long way way. from where we began. No, we started. Oh, I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. I'll tell you. When I see you again. Ladies and gentlemen, Julia Turner waving her hands like she does don't care here in the studio. <laughs> I can't. 
I got no shame. I really like this song. I remember seeing it. So this is the song that plays in the very sad coda of Fast 7 or Furious 7 or I forget now what it was called, where, you know, it's the elegy for Paul Walker, the lead, one of the lead actors in the movie who died in a car accident before this movie was finished filming. And so this song plays over the finale and there's a scene where, you know, a Paul Walker body double and Vin Diesel like drive along a road together and then it like swoops up to an overhead shot and then Paul Walker's car takes one road and Vin Diesel's takes the other. So it's like a, it's an elegy song. And I remember, totally. Chris, when you wrote about this, when it topped the chart, your piece both explained the history of hit elegy songs and what the hell I'm supposed to think about Wiz Khalifa. So please briefly recap here. Uh, briefly, I mean, it's a death song, right? Which makes it the My Heart Will Go On of Furious 7. I mean, it, I could compare it to uh, elegies in hip-hop. There actually, there's actually quite a rich history of hip-hop elegies. There were a couple in the 90s. There was The Crossroads by Bone Thugs and Harmony, which was a huge number one hit 20 years ago. There's uh, Puff Daddy's, uh, then he was then called Puff Daddy, homage to the notorious B.I.G. I'll Be Missing You. You remember that's that song that samples Every Breath You Take by the Police. Uh, so hip-hop has a history of elegies. But then, honestly, with that Charlie Puth, Charlie Puth is that uh, you know high-pitched, almost castrati-like uh, white dude who's playing the piano and singing on it. W- with that, that heavy melodic hook, frankly, it sounds more to me like Celine Dion. I mean, it's it's definitely the kind of record that with a little bit of, you know, pruning could totally play on adult contemporary radio. So, yeah, it's it's playing like a death song and playing like a movie song at the same time, which is why I think of Titanic and why I think of Celine Dion when I think of why this thing's a hit. When I read your piece, I could not remember for the life of me what the I remembered the closing montage, but I couldn't remember how the song sounded. And then I played it. And I've basically had the song stuck in my head ever since. I heard it at the Miami airport a couple weeks ago and then just was like humming it all day, driving my husband crazy. Dana, you're looking very (laughs) dubious about this song. (laughs) No, no. I'm thinking about Wiz Khalifa and how on one of our previous Summer Strut editions, I seem to remember it was maybe taped at the Mohonk Retreat. It was. That there was a Wiz Khalifa song that was one of my favorites that really stuck with me. And then a bunch of people pushed back because it arguably defended drunken driving, right? Yeah, this would be no sleep, right? Yep. Yeah. All right. So we've got these two mega hits from the first half of the year, both of which are coursing through the summer and seem to be squeezing out oxygen from some of the newer releases. But let's run through a few of those contenders, some of which we should say were suggested by listeners as summer strut songs as well. But let's talk about a few of the other potential contenders and and what we think about them. Sure. Well, one song that several people suggested, and it's it's kind of just breaking now, I don't know if it's going to be a chart hit yet, uh, is a song by uh, Jamie XX, uh, the um, British... uh, DJ slash producer, uh, driving force behind the indie band The XX. He's got a new solo album out this year, and he's joined uh, on this record by the um, rapper Young Thug and by the uh, dancehall artist Popcon. Uh, and uh, the song is called I Know There's Gonna Be Good Times. Work every day till we meet I on it up on weekends. Boss at the real friend. Tell me why you're drinking, car. Hey, 
As for songs that are actually like rising on the charts right now, there, there are two, I would say, hot contenders. One is just outside the top 10. The other one is actually in the top five and could go to number one in a couple of weeks. The one that could go to number one is a, a song by a Jamaican artist who calls himself Omi, O-M-I. Uh, the song is called Cheerleader, and it's uh, been uh, remixed by a uh, German producer whose name I can never pronounce correctly. It's Felix, I believe it's Jan. Um, Felix Schadenfreude. Sure. Let's call him Felix Schadenfreude. So Felix Schadenfreude remixed this song by Omi, which was actually a, a reggae hit in 2012. But he's remixed it and put in some EDM touches. The, the record is called Cheerleader. I believe it's at number four on the Hot 100 right now, and it's been rising fast. Can you say what EDM is for people like me who have to figure yes. it out as you're talking? It's reggae crossed with EDM electronic dance music. It's you know got that DJ blippy vibe to it crossed with the lilt of a reggae song, which I think is why everybody seems to have coalesced around this record. If you've read any of the think pieces about what's going to be the song of the summer, everybody is name checking this record by Omi Cheerleader. It's honestly a good record. It's not like a world-beating kind of record. It's very easy. It's pleasant. It's light. It's kind of amazing to me that it's, you know, sort of becoming the consensus song of summer. But it's taking, uh, it's going to take at least another couple of weeks before it makes the makes it all the way to number one. Oh, I think that I found myself a ringing endorsement of Fidelity. Do they make me feel like cheating? Not really. Nah. <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> she looks like a model. She grants my wishes like a genie in the bottle. No pressure, girls. None but... at all. <laughs> I like the the sincerity of your partner being your deepest support in life. May everyone be so lucky, but I'm not sure I can get behind the rest of the lyrics on that one. Yeah. All right. Two songs that haven't come at us on your rundown thus far and which I feel like I've been hearing a fair amount of heat around are Trap Queen, Yes. Uh, by Fetty Wap, which I hear a lot of excitement about. Like, to me, it feels like the song that most has that frisson of, like, newness and discovery and catchiness. Totally. Um, I love Trap Queen. Let's listen. Uh, and we can officially stop this song because as far as I can tell, that's all that happens in the song over and over and over and over again. It's so repetitive. I'm very curious to hear what you make of this song and, and uh, you know, uh, to know a little bit more about Fetty Wap. So uh, Trap Queen is a fascinating record because... It peaked at number two. The only reason I didn't bring it up thus far is that it kind of already had its moment. It peaked in May, and so it's 
very gradually sliding down the charts, although it's still in the top five right now, which is why you're hearing it everywhere. It's one of the more authentically hip-hop-centric tracks that has done this well at radio in a while. Like, not a crossover track, not like the Wiz Khalifa track we were listening to before that's got, you know, a big, shiny pop hook crossed with it. It's like a, you know, it's basically... It's basically a drug romance song, you know, trap music or the concept of the trap is basically where, you know, the drugs are cooked up. Right. And the the idea of trap music is synth based hip hop that's got kind of a woozy vibe. And it's it's been around for a while. And there have been even pop crossover records like Katy Perry's Dark Horse that have tried to cop the sound of trap music. But this is a very core trap anthem crossed with a romantic song. I mean, the reason it's called Trap Queen is that he's singing an ode to his his girlfriend who, you know. It's, I guess, the the rap version of she can bring home the bacon and fry it up in a pan. You know, she she can help me bring home know, the crack cocaine. Yeah, and cook it up, <laughs> help place me cook it, it in up vials and, for sale. Pretty much, but it is it's really catchy and. Uh, it reminds me of that moment in the early 90s when records like Nothing But a G-Thang by uh, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg started crossing over. And, and these were songs that weren't considered pop before, but then suddenly became pop as gangster rap came in. It's got that kind of vibe. And we haven't heard songs like that hitting the top five at radio in, in quite some time. So it's it's an interesting throwback to me, actually, uh, as much as it's cutting edge. Okay. And then my the other song I wanted to raise, because we have you here and Steve is gone, and we've got to talk about Taylor Swift. <laughs> So, sounds to me like the nominee or the song that her label is or she is pushing for the Song of Summer contender is Bad Blood. So, let's listen to that and then discuss. Cause baby, now we got bad blood. You know it used to be mad love. So, take Uh, a look what you've done. uh, Cause baby, now we got bad uh, blood. Hey, I can't take it back. Look where I'm at. Uh. We was OG like D.O.C., remember that? Remember that. My T.O.C. was quite O.D., I.D. my facts. My. Now P.O.V. of you and me, similar Iraq. I don't hate you, but I hate to critique, overrate you. These beats of a dark cart use bass lines to replace you. Take time and erase you. Love don't hear no more. No, I don't fear no more. But it ain't respecting quite sincere no more. And I guess we should mention this is not the album cut of the song. This is the version that's been remixed and has uh, verses from Kendrick Lamar, who I think is widely considered to be the most exciting rapper going these days on it. And then it also got retooled for Summer with this insane video where she's corralled everyone from Lena Dunham to Cindy Crawford to Mariska Hargitay to Cara Delevingne to Selena Gomez to appear in like galactic super battle outfits. Uh, And it's basically (laughs) her song where she's just being mean to Katy Perry for having like stolen a backup dance several years ago or something yeah yeah um I... it's like an employment basically her dancers got poached and she, <laughs> she got revenge with this song yeah. so is this song gonna be a success do you like it i you know it's funny steve's not here right and normally if we were talking about taylor swift i would be among the, those uh singing her praises i really like 1989 the album and i've been basically pro-Taylor through most of her career. Uh, This is easily my least favorite track on 1989. I'm actually going to do Steve's work for him in his absence. Worse than that New York City song? I think... I've weirdly come around to liking that song, I'm going (laughs) to admit. Yeah. 
I, I thought Carl made a good you look defense. look at the skyline and yeah. sing it. No, I honestly, just sidebar, I, I, I've been listening to the album 1989 pretty much exclusively. It's been the only music I've listened to since we recorded that segment with Steve. Right. But I usually started it on number two, started it on Blank Space and just skipped Welcome to New York. And then weirdly, I've like recently come around to that song. But I agree. Bad Blood is both catchy and kind of the worst. It's sneering. I, I compared it to the playground chant Nya Nya in my piece for Slate. Like, it, By the way, I wrote about it for Slate for the Why Is This Song Number One column because it spent a single week at number one. And the only reason it spent a week at number one is YouTube now counts for the charts and it got a ridiculous number of hits. It set a, a Vivo record, Vivo being, you know, the, the YouTube-affiliated music video channel uh, for most views in a week. And they rolled it out like a summer blockbuster. I mean, you want to talk about songs that were premeditated as candidates for Song of the Summer. Uh, Bad Blood is the fourth single from 1989, but they reintroduced it like it was a, a summer sequel. They've remixed it with Kendrick Lamar. Uh, they've totally pumped up, you know, the the low end and the thump of it. And then they've got this music video with a cast of thousands that's, you know, looks for all the world like, uh, I don't know, a sequel to Sin City or something like that. And that blast of views along with, you know, it is selling, it is getting played a ton on the radio. I, I heard it in the supermarket just this morning. Um, but, it, you know, that, that blast of, um, of music video views got it to number one on the charts. And it's a potential Song of the Summer contender. Obviously, it's been sitting at number two behind uh, See You Again for, I don't know, the last month or so. And if it hangs in long enough and See You Again fades enough, it could wind up just based on data being the Song of the Summer. But I don't know. It feels like a bit of a uh, an empty victory to me. It's hardly the best song in 1989. There are so many other better single candidates. Were you the one who pointed out that Style is the song you would have rooted for? Absolutely. I love, love, love Style. I think that's also my favorite song on the album after extensive listening. Can we listen to that for a minute? I should just tell you to leave because I know exactly where it leads, but I watch us go round and round each time. You got that jeans. Yeah, I, I hope that song one day finds its finds its fans. I mean, it it was released as a single. It was actually the single before Bad Blood, and it peaked at number six. It actually interrupted Taylor's run of number one singles, which I think is insane because it's actually my favorite of all the singles. But uh, on my own personal summer 2015 mix, I'm totally putting style. I'm not putting Bad Blood on. <laughs> all right. Well, I have to just have to observe that I, the joy that I feel that when the cat's away, <laughs> the Taylor Swift mice will play. <laughs> we ended up talking about her in this segment. We just had to end on Taylor Swift. Absolutely. Of course. All right. So a weird year for Songs of summer does not feel like we've quite figured it out yet. Maybe one of these will emerge as an obvious favorite. But that means perhaps there's even more room for our listeners and their summer strut nominations to find pride of place in our listeners' iPods. So, Chris, this is your first year surveying the riches that we have. So let me just talk for a moment about process. We, a couple weeks ago, asked everybody to submit their summer strut recommendations. The definition of a summer strut song is not a new hit. It doesn't have to be poppy. It just has to be a song from any era that, when you listen to it, makes you feel like you can strut with confidence and swagger wherever you are going. And we can talk a little bit about what kinds of sounds lend themselves to that as we get further into the segment. We got hundreds of submissions from listeners. Our intern, Lindsay Albrecht, did a terrific job compiling them into a 
big Summer Strap playlist. We spent some time listening to that and I think have each brought some favorites to share. So, Chris, you have never experienced the uncut recommendations of our listening base before because you've never done Summer Strap with us before. I'd love to get some first impressions from you on kind of the the range, the eclecticism, what you thought about the overall tenor of the nominations. Well, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about Summer Strut, and this has been true since you guys started it four years ago, this is the fifth now, yeah. uh, is uh, that you guys are not limited by, nobody's trying to pick the song of the summer, right? You could pick a song that's 50 years old if it feels right. So there's breadth in terms of, you know, there's everything from a Curtis Mayfield classic on here, a couple of Aretha Franklin songs, a Daz Band song from the early 80s called Let It Whip that I could pump at any time. But then there's a lot of stuff from not this year necessarily, but like the last three or four years. If there's one observation I can make, and this is just a general observation, it's that uh, Slate Culture Gabfest listeners loves them some blippy, synthy indie pop. There's a lot of that on here, uh, particularly from the last, I don't know, two, three years. Uh, everything from Kishibashi to uh, Borns to Joywave. I, I count a good, I don't know, half dozen to more or more songs that, that would qualify as, you know, synthy indie pop. Yeah, okay, so so a pretty typical range. Dana, you're familiar with the kinds of offerings we get, so I, I will let you have first pick. What is a song that you enjoyed from Summer Strut that you want to nominate for discussion? Yeah, I think for me, part of nominating the things that I'm going to come in with to, to select from the Summer Strut list have to be that they're, they're unfamiliar to me, or at least unfamiliar in that version, and, and that that version brings something very new to the song. So, for example, as you mentioned, Curtis Mayfield's Get On Up is on this list. Somebody submitted it. There couldn't be a struttier and more wonderful song, and I hope I'm humming that song when the last nail is being driven into my coffin, but I already knew it, so I'm not going to bring that one in. It has to have some element of discovery. So just to start off, and this is one that's just a lot of fun, it's just a really well-constructed Constructed pop song is that I really love the song Kink Shirt by Matt Nathanson. Can we hear a little bit of that? Now that I'm hearing it in the studio, that sounds a lot like a Vampire Weekend song. It sounds like the song from from their first album, but it, it just, to me, has that bouncy, sweet summeriness that I could eat a snow cone on a boardwalk while listening to that song. And it's about checking somebody out, checking out a new person, which seems like a classic summer song theme. Also, I like songs that have references to other songs or musical signifiers in them, so the notion of a musical ode to someone wearing a kink's shirt has a nice, like, nesting dolls quality. Yeah, it's it's kicking it on a couple of different levels. Who I don't know anything about that musician, do you? Matt Nathanson is a folky triple A, that's a album adult alternative in industry parlance dude who's scored a couple of top 20 albums. He's actually selling reasonably well uh, just in the last three or four years and starting to have his pop crossover moment. But uh, it's been a long time coming for him. So, uh, yeah, it, uh, it doesn't surprise me that people would just now be catching on to Matt Nathanson. 
What song struck your ear? And I, I'm not sure if unfamiliarity is going to be your bailiwick here, because I presume you've listened to a lot of this stuff before, but which one struck you as a particularly inspired recommendation? Among songs that I already kind of knew, uh, there's uh, a record by Shamir. There's a lot of buzz around this guy this year. He's this uncategorizable, he's R&B and pop and electronic and a little bit of everything. Uh, he raps sometimes, but not all the time. Uh, his album came out about two or three months ago, and there's been a lot of great buzz on this record. I, I, I'm enjoying it myself. And uh, the record that the person in particular recommended was called On the Regular. Howdy, howdy, hi, hi. Well, everyone is minus, you could call me multiply. Just so you know, yes, yes, I'm that guy. You could give my fingers and I'm not waving high. Guess I'm never ending. You could call me pie. But really, how long till the world realize? Yes, yes, I'm the best. Fuck what you heard. Anything less is... Obviously, I'm sorry. It is good to burn. More like an eagle. This is my movie. Stay tuned for the sequel. Seems so wrong. Seems so illegal. Got this in the back like a foul ball free truck. Yes, yep, you know that I go. This is me on the regular... I mean, what you can hear on that record is, you know, that's him rapping and, you know, he's he's got an almost femme quality to his voice. It's heavily processed. And uh, it sounds like it could come from any number of, you know, bodies. But, you know, the fact that it comes from this, you know, quirky dude from, you know, North Las Vegas, African-American dude is, is part of the appeal of the whole thing. It's kind of like, wow, where did this guy come from? He's, he's really an original. All right. Well, as someone who I guess falls into the Cynthia indie pop trap here, I was not familiar with the band Borns. Is that how you pronounce it? There's a weird line through the O. Probably burns, but what do I know? Oh, God. Okay. In any event. <laughs> I was saying boo earns. <laughs> <laughs> like the audience saying boo earns. <laughs> I, uh, I really liked that. We had a couple of recommendations from them, but I, the one I liked the best was called 10,000 Emerald Pools. strikes me about that. I mean, I just I really like the combination of the beat being pretty rock solid and the etherealness of the choral lyrics. But it's also slower. And I think one thing we've learned over the years is that and that actually we kind of learned when we talked about Strut and Nick Patel wrote our new theme song, like his interpretation of Strut was a little bit faster initially in the first drafts of the theme song that we listened to. But I actually think a Strut beat is slow. It's like loping, but really confident and vivid in the song and insistent. And I find there are lots of songs here that I'd like to dance to, but that don't quite feel Strutty, strutty to me. The one you recommended, Dana, I, I do think qualifies because it has a little bit of that sense of kind of like syncopation to it. But this one is just a very steady, like, I'm on my own pace, I'm doing my own thing, and I am strutting. So I really liked that one. Yeah, I like that one too. All right, Chris, what's another song you want to highlight? Could be a strut plus or could be a strut neg. Well, okay, as long as we're going to talk about songs that are have that strut beat. I'm curious to know, Julia, if you market-tested uh, Spoons, I Turn My Camera On. Oh, well, that to me is one that's like a Curtis Mayfield. I love that song. That's a great old Spoon song, and it is, like, to me, the epitome of a strut beat. Mm-hmm. 
I love that song. I love Spoon generally, although I would say I've listened to their recent work less than some of their older stuff. Um, they feel like they're, like, not messy enough to be currently fashionable or something. They're so precise, and their their little songs are like these little jewel boxes. In any event, I love that strut beat. One discovery for me on this that totally breaks Dana's rule of the song has to be new to you, but I will discuss it anyway because I felt like I heard the song in a new way hearing it in a strut context was Mariah Carey's Fantasy. Which is a great song. I mean, I would, I, it, I'm not someone who needs to like be convinced that Mariah Carey has great musicianship or that she produced some totally fantastic hits in the early '90s. But I think of fantasy. I think of all the kind of like shimmery, like like top notes to it, and her singing. And I had just forgotten the beat, and I submit it. I resubmit it, and salute the listener who submitted it as a struttable song here. So that was a, a number one hit in 1995, but it harkens back quite literally in, a, in the form of a sample to a, a hit from 1981 by the Tom Tom Club. Tom Tom Club is the side project from the band Talking Heads, uh, consisting of uh, Chris France and Tina Weymouth, the husband and wife duo from Talking Heads. And they had a fluke top 40 hit with a song called Genius of Love. And that's where that amazing street beat, I mean, it it really crossed over. That was a You're record. talking about doo-doo. Do, 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 do. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And even the clap to some extent, because if you play the original Genius of Love, like... It, Which we it, can, because it was also submitted for Summer Strut this year, maybe wonderful. by the same person. I'm let's, not sure. Let's listen to it. because I'm a big fan of that Tom Tom Club song too and I've had that on mixes for years and I I I think there's a part where the Mariah Carey song samples the some of the talking too right or does it just take the beat I think it's mostly the beat okay um but 
and definitely the Mariah Carey version, you know, deepens the thump. It, it, it came out a decade and a half later. So it's got, you know, a 90s hip hop beat as opposed to, you know, that 80s beat, which, you know, now by current standards sounds a little bit thinner. But um, but yeah, the, the clap was always there. Uh, the original was kind of a crossover classic. I mean, you know, you could go to, uh, you know, hip hop parties, breakdance parties or, you know, rock parties and you would hear that record at, at all of them. Yeah, anyway, that's I've loved that song for many years for many things, but I never thought of it in a strut context. So resubmitted, Mariah Carey Fantasy. All right, Dana, what else do you want to discuss? Well, as long as we're talking about sampling and calling back to earlier hits, you know, I said before, if there's a cover of a song you already know that shows you something new about the song, right, then that could potentially be strut material. And one of those on this list for me was the Hot and Brass Band version of Marvin Gaye's Sexual Healing, which is essentially all horns all the way through until the very end where there's this kind of amateurish chorus. It almost sounds like all the horn players just put down their horns and started singing the very well-known lyrics to, to Sexual Healing. And Sexual Healing is one of my favorite Marvin Gaye songs. Absolutely. Um, this is all, it's sort of wonderful discovery of just how great the melody is, right? When you strip away the awesome lyrics, then underneath is this beautiful melody that really stands by itself. And I'll just also note, by way of not being cool at all and being a complete square, that this is from the uh, the Chef soundtrack, the Jean Favreau <laughs> yes. movie about the guy who I runs a Cuban up. sandwich truck. <laughs> <laughs> think you could definitely strut to that. I mean, it sounds like a second line. I mean, they're a New Orleans band and, you know, it, it's definitely got the the vibe and the rhythm of, you know, the brass players, you know, marching in unison. Residents of my neighborhood can affirm to you that I strutted to it just last night. <laughs> there we go. An actual market test in the field. Speaking of covers, I have to nag one submission to this list, which is a kind of an indie rock girl cover of Remix to Ignition. There are just some songs that should never fucking be covered. <laughs> I agree. Like, you just don't, you just don't touch it. Can I do a little sidebar, which is that I, I because this is the fifth summer strut, I was sent the, the, the list to the 2011 summer strut, which was the first one. The original R. Kelly Ignition remix is on summer strut 2011 you guys even talked about it i I re-listened to that segment and i mean ignition remix is like one of the best pop songs in the last 15 years i mean it's like pretty much put it in the ever pantheon and and knowing everything we know about r kelly and with all the ambiguity around that like that song that is one of the all-time like oh shit yes (laughs) songs when it comes like when it comes on you are happy and can we just play these poor girls trying to be r kelly Usually we don't do this, but I go ahead and break them off a little wind and wave remix. Now I'm not trying to be rude, but hey, pretty good, I'm feeling you. The way you do the things you do, remind me of my Lex Uh, go away. I have one question, a corollary. Is it part of your anti-remix to ignition cover theory that no one can sing it in karaoke? No. 
Of course you can sing it in karaoke because the entire joint would, like, jump out of, like, joyous <laughs> happiness. It's the, like, you know, I mean, this is a thing, right? There's, like, the Gourds cover of Gin and Juice. Like, there's indie rock. You know, it is it is fun to take songs that are, like, hip-hop-ish and sing them in an acoustic, jangly, guitar-y way. Like, I have done that around a guitar with friends at, at various moments. Like, it, 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 you know, I get the pleasure of doing that. <laughs> but, but you didn't release the song. But not releasing it. I would agree with that. I mean, really, it, it has become a fungus, frankly, in the last decade of, like, indie rockers, quote-unquote, ironically doing a cover of an R&B or hip-hop song, and frankly, it's just not a good look. Uh, yeah, so. it's just kind of unseemly. Yeah. Okay, so that was my neg. One other song that I really loved, and it's actually a good prod to me because I've been meaning to check out this album for a long time, was the Charlie XCX song, Need Your Love. Wait, is this the same XX guy who produced the earlier song we were talking no, about? No, no, that's Jamie XX. This is Charlie XCX. Totally different people. Also, clearly, to even do the show, we should be like Dana X Stevens and Julia XTX Turner and uh, Chris. I Chris XX Malanfi, sure. I'm just not? wondering if they get each other's mail. Dude, I got your X mail again. <laughs> anyway, I've been meaning, I've heard great things about this Charlie XCX album for months now. I obviously loved uh, the Icona Pop song, I Love It, which she was the sound person behind, as I understand it. Is that yes, correct? definitely. Um, the writer. Mm hmm. You know, we talked, I think, on another Strut segment about the Iconopop song, I Love It, which Charlie XCX was the kind of musical mastermind behind. We just talked about Fancy by Iggy Azalea. Charlie XCX sings the hook on that and wrote that. All she's, the best parts of that song are Charlie XCX. So basically, she's been writing other people's strutty songs for years, and now she's oh, got yeah. this album, which I've been meaning to check out. So Need Your Love was submitted by a listener, and I enjoyed it. Anyway, great strutty beat on that. Chris, you were kind of squinting, which makes me wonder if the listener submitted like the eighth best track on that album or something. No, no, I'm, I ain't mad at it. I, the, I love the whole Charlie XCX album. It, it came out at the very end of last year. I listened to it like twice and immediately put it in my top 10 for the year. The whole album's really good. Uh, and, you know, if you like that, you can't go wrong with almost any track on it, frankly. I've like clearly picked like the bad blood of that album. Like, no, it's not. <laughs> no, no, it, it's a good track. I, I would name others that are better. I mean, there was a hit last late last summer and so summer 2014 called boom clap that was really catchy and really awesome so and there are several other really good tracks on that album but yeah no i they're all fantastic all right chris close it out one last song so i don't know if this is a little obvious but because you can submit anything and several people submitted older songs uh somebody submitted two songs by aretha franklin i don't know if this was two different people or just one person who was on a total aretha franklin kick uh but they picked two songs from her totally classic you know, end of the 60s, turn of the 70s period, and they're both covers. Uh, one is a cover of the Beatles song, Eleanor Rigby. I'm Eleanor Rigby. I picked up the rice in the church where the weddings had been. Yeah. I'm Eleanor Rigby. I'm keeping my face in a job by the door. I want to know what is it for. Well, only and the other is uh, the band's The Wait. <laughs>
they're both fantastic. I mean, you know, what, what else can you say about Aretha Franklin? She's Aretha Franklin. You know, like she invented the strut. But I'll give bonus points to the person who picked those two Aretha Franklin joints rather than, you know, respect or something like that, because they are both totally reinvented by Aretha. Yeah, so many things are great about the way she reinterprets the Beatles' Eleanor Rigby. That's the song I've been hearing a lot lately because my daughter's learning to play it on piano. She's learning the chords. So I spend my days deep within, you know, the, the world of Eleanor Rigby. And one thing that's obvious from that bit we heard is she changes it into the first person. I'm yes. Eleanor Rigby. That's already an incredible ownership and reappropriation of the song. And I also noticed she does shift into the third person later on when she dies, when Eleanor Rigby slash Aretha Franklin dies and go and talks about Eleanor Rigby died in the church, it was buried along with her name. But she omits the line, no one was saved, which is a very Aretha Franklin moment, right? Like the queen of gospel is not going to make the claim that no one was saved. There has to be the possibility that someone could be. If you're listening to Aretha Franklin, someone is saved. <laughs> <laughs> you are saved. <laughs> Just by listening to this record, you are hereby saved. Exactly. All right. Well, Summer Strut, a quinquennial Summer Strut concluded this time with slightly more musical knowledge. No no offense to Steve, but I feel like Chris was actually able to tell us something about all of the musicians on our list, which was novel and exciting. Shall we endorse, team? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Dana, what do you got? Well, since we're doing an all-musical extravaganza this week with the Brian Wilson biopic and then the two music segments back-to-back, I, of course, have to do a musical movie for my endorsement. And I already mentioned it uh, first up at the beginning. It's Walk Hard, the 2007 Jake Kasdan biopic parody, musician's biopic parody, which I think many people have seen individual clips of, but it was not a big hit at the box office at the time, and I sort of don't get why it's not a comedy classic. Granted, it is sort of one of those strings of set pieces where some of the comic set pieces are funnier than others, but there are enough solid funny ones and an absolutely adorable central performance from John C. Riley, and so many good parody songs written for the movie Totally, that I'm really, really surprised it's not just sort of a part of the public consciousness. I feel among the cognoscenti of people who love Walk Hard, we really love Walk Hard, and we love referencing it, specifically, what are some of the jewel moments, Chris? The, the Beatles scene, where John C. Riley's character, Dewey Cox, meets all four of the Beatles in the Maharishi's tent in India. Absolutely fantastic scene, with Paul Rudd just doing the best John Lennon. <laughs> well, and, and the... the comedy for me is the fact that he's referring to all four of the Beatles by their full names. It's like, what do you think, Paul McCartney? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's a great point. observation, George, George Harrison. Harrison. <laughs> so there's, yeah, that's, and that sort of gets so perfectly right at the encounter moment, the wooden encounter that always has to happen among great men, great people in, in music biopics. And then one of my favorites that I think of in every movie, musician biopic or not, where somebody breaks down and trashes an apartment, right? A very, very common movie trope. But there's a moment that, that John C. Riley's character decides to take apart his apartment in some moment of drunken rage and loneliness, but he's really, really methodical and thorough about it. So the scene goes on and on, and by the end, he's getting out a chainsaw and sawing his couch in half. <laughs> it takes a really long time, but he must destroy that apartment. <laughs> so walk hard. Walk hard, Dewey Cox story is my recommendation. All right. That sounds like one to revisit. Chris, what is your recommendation? Today, I'd like to endorse The Sacred and the Profane. First, The Profane, and I, I mean that in the best sense. If you're a fan of trippy, sexy, cool R&B records, today is a great day. We're taping this on Tuesday the 30th, and it's the release day of Miguel's third album. Wildheart. I've been looking forward to this album not just all year, but for about three years because that's how long it's been since Miguel's last album, Kaleidoscope Dream, which was a total world beater. It, it topped a lot of lists in 2012 for album of the year, including mine. Frankly, I think it's a better trippy R&B album than the one that won the Paz and Drop Critics poll that year, Frank Ocean's Channel Orange. Miguel is this ridiculously talented singer-songwriter producer from LA. He's half black, half Mexican, and his music is nominally R&B, but it has so much baked into it. A lot of rock, some classic pop, some hip-hop swagger, a lot of old soul. You might remember him from his 2012 hit Adorn, which 
when the greatest songs of the 2010s are tallied in like 2019 or whatever, mark my words, that song is going to place high. It's basically like the closest any artist this decade has gotten to a stone Marvin Gaye style classic. And I don't mean that in a Robin Thicke sense. Anyway, Wild Heart is out today. Uh, actually, it, it's uh, one of the last major albums that uh, the music industry is going to release on a Tuesday uh, because in uh, the whole industry is switching to a global release date of Friday in a couple of weeks. But Why? anyway, Wait, really? Yes, really. Yes. Albums are all going to come out on Fridays from now Why on, starting in that? mid-July. Doesn't that mean they get to fight with movies? And does, huh? Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm pro-global release day. I'm not thrilled that it's a Friday. That seems like a strange decision to me. But yes, starting in mid-July, all records are going to come out on so Fridays. I feel so sad for Tuesdays. I know, right? Huh. I never knew they always came out on Tuesdays. Tuesday, we hardly knew ye. <laughs> exactly. I just I feel like, you know, apart from Tuesday being our taping day, like, that's what Tuesdays had going for them. Totally. Like, there's never been, like, a Banner Tuesday TV night. Please write me in and tell me about all the Banner Tuesday TV nights there have been. But I feel like there's, like, Mondays and Thursdays. But Tuesday had music. I know. I not know. to not be interested in the Miguel part of what you've just said. I know. Said. <laughs> I, I, that was an aside. But, yes, I thought you guys might find that interesting. Anyway, uh, the new album, Wild Heart, maybe a shade less amazing than Kaleidoscope, but I haven't decided yet. It's at least an A- minus. Miguel album, which is an A plus for most artists. It's sexy and playfully dirty. Miguel definitely works blue, and it's he's pretty shameless about his adoration of his sexual partners, but in creative ways that don't feel like booty jam tropes. And, and it's a great headphone record, so I highly recommend that. And now, quickly to the sacred, I have to assume most folks listening to this podcast have experienced the most remarkable musical happening of the past week, which was President Obama's seemingly spontaneous rendition of Amazing Grace last Friday at the funeral of South Carolina State Senator and Pastor Clementa Pinckney. Uh, if you've only seen headlines or caught a brief clip. I recommend rewatching the whole thing for the president's actual singing, the way he bends the notes, the way he goes for it on I Once Was Lost, the sense of harmony. I, I know the obvious answer is, well, duh, he's in a black church, but it doesn't feel like code switching to me. The, the almost melismatic way he sings it feels innate. He misses some notes here and there, but uh, the performance is like kind of just go for it, bungee jump awesome. And uh, I was really impressed with it. Um, and if you want to watch a cool follow-up thing about Amazing Grace, the song, Bill Moyers, the uh, you know veteran journalist, uh, PBS host, has a, a whole episode uh, of his show from 1990. It's actually 25 years old, all about Amazing Grace, this 225-year-old song that recurs throughout American history and American culture. And uh, it's totally worth your time. Uh, I believe uh, you can catch clips of it on the, the Moyers & Company website right now. Yeah, that was an extraordinary moment when Obama broke into song. I mean, the power of public singing from, like, men in suits who rule us. Like, they don't do it very often, and it's it was incredibly moving, I thought. My endorsement this week is a piece of children's literature, as we all know, my primary form of cultural consumption these days. But I encountered this weekend, uh, we were away for the weekend, and I found a book that I had never read before, uh, which my children really sparked to, which is called A Very Special House by Ruth Krauss, pictures by Maurice Sendak. And it's just a great imagination book, and it has a great, like, rollicking rhythm of goofiness. And it's really fun to read. And the pictures are incredible. It's basically just a kid imagining a very special house where everything is just as they want it. And the illustrations have these kind of dotted lines for all of the imaginary things that happen. And it has a a Seussian combination of unlikely illustration and metrical complication that's propulsive and delightful. So I was totally unfamiliar with it. And I recommend it. Those Ruth Krauss, Maurice Sendak, collaborations are all great. There's a book called I'll Be You and You'll Be Me that is our sort of classic birthday present book for for a friend. It's about friendship, childhood friendship, and that same combination, writer and illustrator. It's beautiful. Oh, I don't know. I didn't know anything about Ruth Krauss. I never, I don't think I really encountered their collaborations before. So. One of the main things she did was go around collecting testimony from children and turning it into 
books. So A Hole is to Dig is a book that they did together. Um, that's a really big best-selling classic children's book, I think. And and it's all ideas that were culled from conversations with children that, that Sendak then illustrated. Oh, neat. That's such a cool idea and way to go about it, because I feel like the poetry of children is one of the great delights of spending time around them. This morning, my son told me that he was making a newspaper out of his blanket. <laughs> okay, great. I don't even know. Print you... has a future after all. It's yeah. blankets. For the daughter of a newspaper, a newspaper man and woman, it was a, a delightful moment. I'm not, it may be the last time he ever uses the word newspaper, but but he used it once. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us for this week's show. Thank you, guys. This was a blast. Uh, Dana, holding it down as always. May you strut into the summer full of glory and sunshine. Same to you. <laughs> Not that you shouldn't do the same, Chris. Sorry, that was a little, a little okay. off balance. That's okay. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hefferman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht, with assistance this week from Marissa Vichy. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and Chris Melanthi, I'm Julia Turner.